welcome to City Breaks Bath, Episode 3, In and Around the Abbey. So this episode is going to address the question of what happened between the departure of the Romans and the arrival of Jane Austen and friends. Well, quite a lot really. Not going to go into massive detail, but would like to have a look at what Bath was like in the Middle Ages and what traces you can see of that period in the city today. Quite a lot of the episode will be focusing on the Abbey, which I'm sure anybody who goes to Bath is going to want to have a look round. So we'll have a look at some of the stories behind that, and also a brief reference to some of the streets just round the Abbey, where you can find traces of Bath from the Middle Ages, the narrow streets, little traces of the market, the grounds of the Abbey supervised by the monks, etc. There's absolutely no doubt that all of this is dominated by one thing today, and that is Bath Abbey. That glorious, uplifting building, which dates from the very beginning of the 16th century. So let's start with a little bit of a history of that. It is in fact important to know that what you're looking at there is actually the third incarnation, if you like, of an abbey on this site, or a great church on this site, because in the 8th century, 781 to be precise, there was a Saxon abbey. In 1107, the Normans built a big new cathedral. And in 1499, the version that we see today was begun. So there have been over 12 centuries of Christian worship right here. Perhaps the most important early date, apart from the building of the original Saxon abbey, is 973, because that was the year in which one King Edgar was crowned. And that was important not just for Bath, but actually for the whole of England. He was in fact named the first king of all England. And it was here in Bath, so not in London, not in Canterbury, not in York, but here in Bath that he was crowned. A splendid and hugely important event, which actually has had repercussions ever since, all down the centuries, as I think I should explain. So there are two things that made Edgar's coronation really important. The first one is, he was the first king of all England, so until then there had been different rulers in Wessex, in Mercia, in Northumbria, and Edgar's coronation was seen as the occasion when hopefully those three areas were going to come together, unite as England, and hopefully stop fighting each other in quite such a drastic way. And the second important aspect is the very close involvement of the church. Not one, but two archbishops attended. So Archbishop Dunstan from Canterbury and Archbishop Oswald from York. Their joint attendance serving as a sign to everybody that both those areas of the country were behind this king. And the ceremony which they devised was very religious in content, much more so than previous coronations had been. So the message being sent was that this king had been divinely chosen. He was blessed and that would be reflected in the service. And they chose an auspicious date, Whit Sunday. And just to give you a flavour of the occasion, here's a description which comes from A Traveller's History of Bath, written by Richard and Sheila Thames, which tells us exactly what happened. Quote, the king entered Bath's Abbey Church, already wearing his crown, and laid it aside as he knelt at the altar. Dunstan then led the singing of the Te Deum, at the end of which all the assembled bishops of England raised the king from his knees. Edgar then swore an oath, repeating his pledges from the archbishop's dictation, that the church and all Christian people should enjoy peace for ever, 
that all wrong and robbery should be forbidden, and that all judgments should be made with justice and mercy. The two authors then go on to explain the sequence of events in the service. So an oath was taken, there were prayers, the king was anointed by both archbishops, so again showing their unity. And then a song was sung, which you may well know if you followed anything about coronations in the present day, and that's called Zadok the Priest, chosen carefully to underline the fact that this was God's work. This king had been chosen by God himself. That's because Zadok was the king who anointed Solomon in the Bible. And as the story is told in 1 Kings chapter 1, we made very aware of the divine element of this. Quote, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king. And all the people rejoiced and said, God save the king, long live the king, may the king live forever. Amen. Alleluia. And those words, first used in this coronation in 973, have been used ever since at every single coronation. Perhaps you know them from the words of the song which Handel composed for the coronation of George II in 1727. So a fine old English tradition, but it begins right here in Bath Abbey in the year 973. We know that everybody assembled in the Abbey joined in the bit which says, Let the King Live Forever. We know that Edgar was given a ring and a sword, that Dunstan himself put the crown on his head, and that the two archbishops then conducted him to the throne. Following that came the anointing of Elfrida, Edgar's queen. She too was crowned. And then after that, of course, a huge banquet at which both Edgar and Elfrida presided on separate tables. Quite a lot of this information comes from a history known as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and here, just to give you the flavour of it, are a few lines from that. In this year, Edgar, ruler of the English, was consecrated king by a great assembly in the ancient city of Asmanasiastra, also called Bath by the inhabitants of this island. On that blessed day, called and named Whit Sunday by the children of men, there was great rejoicing by all. As I have heard, there was a great congregation of priests and a goodly company of monks and wise men gathered together. So do think of that when you're in the Abbey, remembering, of course, that it wasn't in the Abbey that you're in. It was in its predecessor but one, the Saxon Abbey, built in the 8th century. And it's important to stress that much of the content of that ceremony, newly devised for Edgar, has in fact been used in every single coronation since, right up to and including the 1953 one, for the present Queen Elizabeth II. And as I think I mentioned in the introductory episode, 20 years after her coronation in 1973, Queen Elizabeth herself attended a service in the Abbey to mark the 1,000 years since that original coronation using this format, commemorating, if you will, a 1,000 years of history, and reminding us of the importance of the city of Bath all those centuries ago. So then, Edgar, what kind of king did he make? It's interesting to know that he's been known in history as Edgar the Peaceful, perhaps because he was the king whose coronation united the country. And although he actually only reigned for another two years after his coronation, he's credited with having set up the idea of law courts in England, and we know too that he was very interested in monasteries. You can tell from the service that he was a great ally of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dunstan, and 
Edgar too played his part to make the monasteries more significant. Someone who remembered him was King Canute, crowned in the 11th century, who said at the time, quote, It is my will that all the nation, ecclesiastical and lay, shall steadfastly obey Edgar's law. We skip forward a century or two from Edgar's coronation to 1091. That's an important date for Bath, because that was the year when Bath was transferred from royal possession to an episcopal possession, so the importance of the church becoming much more. And that was the period at which it was decided that they would demolish the Saxon Abbey and build an ambitious new cathedral in the Norman style. This was done. It wasn't really one building, it was a whole complex, including a chapter house, cloisters, a refectory and an infirmary, so really a complex that was going to be the centre of the city. If you're wondering what happened to that, I'm afraid the answer is disaster struck. In 1137, it was badly damaged by fire, and then there were various reasons why action wasn't taken, not least, for example, the Black Death in 1348. Dealing with the plague didn't leave time to think about rebuilding the church, and it gradually fell into disrepair. Until the next key date, 1499, in the reign of Henry VII, when the bishop, Oliver King, had a dream, and a dream which led to action. So it's said that he saw angels on a ladder connecting heaven to earth. The dream had the Holy Trinity in it, and it had an olive tree with a crown resting on it. And Bishop Oliver looked at this and thought, that's a message to me. My name is being referenced. And he saw this as a message from heaven, telling him that it was his task to restore the cathedral. Oliver did as asked. Henry VII supported him. In fact, Henry VII sent some of his master masons down from London to work on the project, and they were very much the best in their category. They'd already worked on Henry VII's chapel in Westminster Abbey. They had designed St George's at Windsor and Corpus Christi College in Oxford. And so it was that the new abbey was built, largely the beauty that you still see today. But that was by no means the end of the story. Because, although it had only been begun in 1499, only 40 years later came the dissolution of the monasteries. Henry VIII's quarrel with the church, desire to reduce its power, which caused so much destruction all over the country. We have an actual date, 27th of January 1539. That's when the two royal commissioners came to Bath. A pair of lawyers, apparently, so they were always going to win the argument. And sure enough, they were able to find fault and decree that really this community would have to be broken up. There were abbeys and communities of monks who fought against this. I'll be telling the story of Abbot Whiting from Glastonbury who lost his life over this very argument. But in Bath, there wasn't really so much resistance. It was decided that the monks would be pensioned off. There were records stating that one was given £4, 13 shillings and fourpence, another £9. So done by rank, I think. The prior himself was given £80 and a new house. But it was all pretty relentless. And we have the authors of A Traveller's History of Bath to thank for this detail, which explains exactly what happened. Quote, the crown disposed of the abbey's lands. The abbey church was offered to the citizens of Bath for £333, six shillings and eightpence. When they failed to buy it, it was sold to one Humphrey Collis of Taunton. He stripped the lead off the roof and demolished the roof of the nave 
and in 1543 sold it to Matthew Colthurst, the MP for Bath. So that was it, finished, gone. Although in fact, as it turned out, not for all that long. Because in the reign of Henry's daughter, Elizabeth I, their luck changed. Elizabeth was very keen to have the monastery renovated and brought back into use as a church. She underlined this by fundraising herself to help pay for it, and in fact by visiting Bath. She arrived in 1574 and therefore gave the project some impetus. The Queen wanted it done, and done it was, although it took apparently about 45 years. There were other major reconstructions in later periods, in the Victorian era for example, and in 1927 when a war memorial chapel was added. And in fact, today the Abbey isn't standing still. They are running their footprint project, which is going to restore the Abbey's flooring, which apparently is collapsing, and, excitingly, and going all the way back to the engineering prowess first used by the Romans, they're going to put in a new underfloor heating system, which will use the hot spring waters. So history absolutely coming full circle. The Romans heated their baths and their spa. We're heating our abbey. How wonderful. So, if you go to visit the abbey, what is it that you're looking out to see? As usual, I could go through everything in massive detail and you'd probably switch off. So I'm going to pick out just a few highlights to look out for on your way round. Starting, in fact, before you get inside at all, by suggesting that you stand in the paved area in front of the west front of the cathedral and look at the carvings on its facade. Angels clambering up and down ladders, two olive trees, all as a reminder of Bishop Oliver's vision, the one which started the whole project. And also, before you go in, maybe have a quick look at the three big doors on the west front. They're shield-shaped and made of solid oak, and they were put in place about a 100 years after the abbey was originally finished, in memory of one of the bishops of Bath and Wells, one James Montague, who was bishop here between 1608 and 1616. His brother had them made and put in place, and the design, the shield shape, is because they're in the shape of the Montague family arms. So, moving inside, you'll probably want to just wander around for a bit and enjoy the beautiful surroundings. But one thing to make towards would be the Edgar window. So that's on the left-hand side, right at the back of the cathedral, a beautiful stained-glass window which commemorates the coronation of King Edgar. It shows the two archbishops, the one from Canterbury and the one from York, officiating at the ceremony. Edgar himself, of course, wearing the crown, and above him, in Latin, the wording Edgar Omni Angli Rex. Edgar Rex King Omni Angli of all the English. So really making clear what it was that made his coronation so special. The other fantastically beautiful stained glass window is the one just behind the altar, which is made up of panels, 56 I think in total, which tell the story of the life of Jesus. Starting at the bottom left with a panel dedicated to the Annunciation, so the arrival of the angel to visit Mary to tell her that she was going to have a baby who would be the Son of God. Moving through then many of the events of Jesus' life, ending up with the events of Holy Week, the Last Supper and the Crucifixion, the Resurrection, and the very last panel shows Jesus' ascension into heaven. Just near to the window, you might notice two statues, one of St Dunstan, 
He's the one with a little bird on his shoulder. And another one of Bishop Oliver King holding, of course, an olive branch. Something that's very obvious all round the Abbey are the many, many memorial tablets set in the walls. I think I read that there are more here than in any other church in England except for Westminster Abbey. 641 in total, in fact. Most of them date from the 18th century. They include some people that you will have heard of, or certainly will have heard of by the end of the series. Beau Nash, for example, the larger-than-life master of ceremonies who presided over proper behaviour in elegant bath of the 18th century. And he has an epitaph which reads, Barthonie elegantiae arbiter. So, the arbiter of the elegant manners of Bath. You might notice panels to Sir Isaac Pittman, who invented shorthand. He lived and worked in Bath. There's one for the artist, William Hoare. There are lots of people that you probably haven't heard of, but who did amazing things. So examples of those would be Sir Richard Hussey Bickerton, for example, who served alongside Admiral Nelson at Trafalgar. Then there's one to a Dr Sibthorpe, whom we are told wrote a ten-volume study of the plant life of Oxfordshire, identifying 12,000 different specimens. Who knew? There's also one to James Thames Grieve, who was physician to Empress Elizabeth of Russia. And there are many more to more ordinary people, many of which read very poignantly. So I picked out one to just read in total, a terrible story of a father in the 19th century who lost his little daughter and his wife in very quick succession, two days apart. It doesn't really say who exactly they were. It doesn't tell us what happened to them. But it does give a very poignant picture of the fragility of life in the 19th century. It's one of the first tablets on the left-hand side as you go in, and it reads as follows. To the memory of Mary Rouse, youngest daughter of Joshua Rouse, Esquire. She died on the 20th of January, 1825, in the ninth year of her age. Also to the memory of Anne Elizabeth Rouse, the beloved wife of Joshua Rouse, Esquire, of Blenheim House, Southampton, Hampshire. She died on the 22nd of January, 1825, in the 44th year of her age. The Abbey, of course, has been a working church for centuries. And just to give a flavour of that, I've picked out two little extracts, both written in the 18th century, but which deal with quite different aspects of religious worship. So the first one was written in 1700, and it describes going to divine service, which was very crowded. And the author notes that not everybody was actually paying attention to the service, because this is what was happening instead. Quote, in this time, there is more billet doux conveyed to the ladies than notes to desire the prayers of the congregation. So we get the idea that some of the men are passing notes to some of the ladies. And in fact, the author goes on to say that he believes, quote, the only saints several came there to adore were the ladies. And by way of example, he attaches to his letter one of these little notes and tells us how he came by it. Quote, it was conveyed in a candied orange to a lady in one of the galleries, which she by accidents dropped and I had the fortune to find. So there you are, a little bit of 18th century gossip. And then from 80 or so years later, 1787 in fact, there's a piece from a letter written by Sarah Martha Holroyd describing the fact that the Abbey was running a Sunday school. One particular clergyman was in charge, and after one of the services, 
the children would have their own special service, which she describes as follows. 900 children in perfect order, placed on benches in long rows, so quiet that you could hardly have heard a pin drop while the clergyman was reading. She goes on to describe quite memorably how ragamuffins a lot of these children were and how unusual it was to see them all sitting quietly, instead of, as she put it, cursing, swearing and fighting in the streets. But she was very taken with the fact that they did seem to know the service, many of them by heart, and watching this put tears in her eyes. At one instant, without direction to do so, the nine hundred dropped on their knees and rose again, which showed that they knew what they were about. Their little hands lifted up and joined together, looking with such innocent devotion. They sang the psalms, all in time with the organ, by heart, and notwithstanding the number, the sound was neither too loud nor too harsh, but on the contrary, soft and affecting beyond measure. Just a reminder then that the Abbey is more than a beautiful building. It's been the centre of worship in the city for centuries. When you've finished inside, it's nice to look round the surrounding area a little bit, because that is the area that was within the city walls. And just as a flavour of Bath in the 15th century, here's a description written by one Thomas Chandler, who was visiting. Quote, the whole compasses of the city is encircled as by a coronet, by a splendid wall, and unless it be surveyed within, all its beauty cannot be beheld. For it has not less of beauty within its walls than without, nor are only one or two of its streets neat and elegant, but all its parts. What shall I say of the antiquity and nobility of its origin? So, a visitor who was really impressed. What then was Bath actually like in the Middle Ages? Well, it was a bustling town, a centre for the woollen trade. Wool was brought down from the hills. The monks in the abbey developed the weaving trade. And Bath gradually became a centre of the cloth trade in general. If you look at a list of the mayors of Bath since 1230, which I happen to have done, you can see that some of the early entries actually reflect this. So the mayor in 1237 was one Henry Le Taylor, E-U-R, so a sort of vaguely French-sounding name. And in 1262, so 25 years later or so, was also a mayor, perhaps his son or his grandson, called, with more English spelling, Henry Taylor. It's also the case that the patron saint of Bath is St Catherine, who is usually pictured with a spinning wheel and who is the patron saint of spinning and cloth making. North Parade is one of the oldest streets in Bath, a little alleyway leading from behind the abbey back towards the river, much frequented by visitors to the city because it contains Sally Lund's old tea shop. There's a plaque on the building labelling it the oldest house in Bath, saying it's been there since 1482. There's some questioning as to how accurate that is, but what we do know to be true is what the follow-up to the inscription says, namely, quote, Sally Lunn lived here in 1680. Sally Lunn was French. She was believed to be possibly a Huguenot baker who'd fled France, where Protestants were being prosecuted. Many of them came to England. She's thought to have been one of them. It's thought that maybe her original name was Solange Louillon, and that got anglicised to Sally Lunn. Anyway, she set up a bakery here, and even in those days, everyone likes a bit of French patisserie, so she did very well, was very popular, became a place that posher people in Bath would visit to have their tea, and her fame spread. 
She's mentioned, for instance, in a Dickens novel as, quote, Sally Lunn, the illustrious author of The Tea Cake. And it remains true to this day that having a cup of tea and a tea cake at Sally Lunn's is very much a favourite thing to do in Bath. I'd almost say a must-do, although tea at the pump room is also very nice. Perhaps if you stay more than a day, you'll have time for both. That building, in fact, was excavated in the 1980s, and a medieval faggot oven was found inside, proving that it definitely did predate 1680 when Sally Lunn moved in, even if we're not quite sure of the exact date. And in fact, they discovered a hidden floor as well, under which there were some Roman remains. And that's become a tiny little museum, and you can pop down and have a look before you have your tea. We know too that Bath was a bustling market town, and that the market was held on the site of the Guild Hall, which stands between the back of the Abbey and the river. It's still a market today, in fact, and there's a big sign in there giving some indication of the history, which reads as follows. Bath's market was described in 1371 as having been held by the Bishop of Bath and Wells from time immemorial. At that time, the market was held on Wednesdays and Saturdays, from October until Palm Sunday. It took place in the open air in the high street, and all kinds of things were sold. Bath was an important wool town, and woollen cloth, as well as animals and provisions, passed through the market. In medieval times, a market cross once stood in the high street, but this was replaced by a market house, built in the middle of the street in the 1550s. There are some drawings of the market house in 1610, which you can look at, and as the notice points out, they are next to the stocks and pillory. So again, giving a little flavour of crime and punishment in that era. And finally, of course, in this period, Bath was still a spa town, or a spa town of sorts. We are past the Roman era, with the elaborate bathing. We haven't got to the Georgian era yet, when that's going to absolutely come back into its own. But that's not to say that the citizens of medieval Bath weren't also using, enjoying, profiting from the thermal water and its health-giving properties, which was free to them, from the hot springs. So Henry VIII sent his librarian, John Leyland, down to Bath. I think he was touring libraries looking for ancient manuscripts, but he wrote about his visit and made reference to the hot springs. He was writing in 1533, and really he had two things to say about the waters of Bath. The first one was really on the theme of how amazing it was that they were there at all. Quote, the city of Bath is environed on every side with great hills, out of which come many springs of pure water that be conveyed by diverse ways to the city, insomuch that lead being made there, many houses in the town have pipes of lead to convey water from place to place. So he's telling us that even back in 1533, it was a place where many mod cons were provided. But his second point is slightly less attractive. The water, he explained, is rumoured to have healing properties, so that means that unfortunately it attracts a lot of sick people to the city. And he didn't mince his words because he tells us that he saw, quote, sufferers from leprosy, pockets, scabs and great aches. Hopefully the leprosy, the pox and the scabs are a thing of the past. Certainly no longer the topic of polite conversation in elegant bath. But his writing does serve as a reminder that it wasn't just the Romans and the Georgians who knew how to make the most of the spa waters. 
And that leads me nicely on at the end of this episode to the topic of next week's, because I'm proposing to treat the whole topic of Bath as a spa town with lots more detail from across the ages of the ways in which people use the waters for relaxation, for treatment, for health, from Roman times right up to our own 21st century. So finishing with a little piece on the ultra-modern spa facility which was built in, I think, 2005 it opened, with the Millennium Grant, the Thermi Bath Spa. So for the moment then, we're going to leave medieval bath behind and move on to other things. I hope very much that you've enjoyed visiting Medieval Bath. Perhaps you feel inspired to visit the Abbey, to wander in its surroundings, perhaps to partake of tea and a Sally Lunn, but that equally you're interested to join me next week and hear more about a different aspect of the city. So for the moment then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>